Okay, so you're here for some great church leadership content. The podcast is great, but there's also another piece of content you need to be enjoying each week. It is the Leading Saints email newsletter. Now I get it. Email newsletters feel so 2006, you know? But it isn't as old-fashioned as you might think. It's actually one of the most popular pieces of content that Leading Saints produces. Each week, I share a unique leadership thought that can only be found in the newsletter. I keep it short and sweet. Most can read it in less than five minutes. And then we share with you recent content you might have missed, throwback episodes, and Leading Saints events that happen more often than you might anticipate. If you want to make sure you are on the email list, simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. That's leadingsaints.org slash 14. That will also get you 14 days access to our full library of content not available to the general public. So look for Leading Saints in your inbox by going to leadingsaints.org slash 14 or click the link in the show notes. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down through the powers of the internet with Brian Class. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, I first came across your name and your your work on the Art of Manliness podcast. My friend Brett McKay there has, produces some great content and, and I always listen and you had an intriguing topic from a book you wrote that I thought uh, fit well in our audience. So I reached out to you. So maybe you just introduce yourself around uh, your book and maybe give us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I'm uh, an associate professor of global politics at University College London. I grew up in, in Minnesota. I'm not, I'm not English, as you can probably tell from my accent. <laughs> and this, the way I sort of introduce myself often is I, I study uh, bad people who do bad things in power. <laughs> so which there's, there's a fair amount of those out there. And what I'm really interested in is basically how we can make people in power behave better and how we can engineer systems that attract the right kinds of people to positions of leadership in the future as well. So my view very strongly is that there's a lot that can be done. And I'm, despite having met some of the, some really awful people around the world, I'm a diehard optimist and I think we can make a much better world. Nice. Love it. Well, before we jump into our discussion, I, I've always got to ask you, you know, this is Leading Saints. We're a podcast to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And you are not a Latter-day Saint, at least I assume. I didn't read it anywhere in your bio, but any strange like interactions with Mormons, Latter-day Saints, or sometimes they refer to as LDS that uh, come to mind? We always, you know, making love making those connections. Yeah, not, not particularly strange. I had a, a friend in, in undergrad who was, was a member of the church, and he, I remember him leaving after our first year to go on his mission and coming back, oh, nice. and being, being the, the older second year student in the, you know, sort of reintegration into the college and so on. But no, I, I haven't had many uh, interactions because I think over here, at least, it's not been as, as much of a part of life in right. central London. <laughs> so, right. you know, some of it's geographical as well. But yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. basically, yeah. Nice. Well, good to hear it's all positive, right? And hopefully positive, you can yeah. add this to your, your positive Latter-day Saint interactions. So it's all good. Yeah, no, so, he's a great guy. The, guy. the guy I knew was was wonderful, wonderful human being. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you may not be as familiar with the dynamics that we experience in our faith as, you know, we're, we have a lay ministry. So, you know, I was a 28 year old marketing grad who was in an inner city area and all of our congregations, which we called wards are based off of geographics. So the neighborhood is the, is the congregation. And so they only select from people in that neighborhood. And I was the one that they selected. I didn't have any, you know, leadership 
background per se or any you know deep thought or experience that would maybe lend to that. Uh, but I jumped in and had to figure out how to lead. And so, and this is the this is the tradition throughout our our faith is that random individuals are called to lead a congregation. And and I guess you know you talk a lot about like HOA boards and whatnot, some of this low level leadership in, in certain geographical areas. And I guess I could compare it to that other than the problems that they that land on their desk are sometimes a little more daunting than maybe, you know, when someone's taking out trash cans or how, you know, how people lay out their yards. It's more of like, you know, I'm dealing with a life crisis here or my marriage isn't working or I need more encouragement in my faith. And well, Bishop, who's a mechanic Monday through Friday, what do you think? You know? And so I thought the the topic of your research in your book was so intriguing because in our tradition, the most random people, it seems at times, are given power and leadership. And it's interesting to see what it does to them. And sometimes the same people tend to land in these positions. You know, we call it the same 10 people in a congregation that seem to end up in these leadership roles again and again and again. So as far as like, just from your research, maybe on that lower level, because you you know, you talk about governments and leaders and tyrants and whatnot on that higher level. But just from your research on that, maybe that lower level, that HOA level, what are the, does corruption still happen there? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. It, it's, it's, it happens everywhere, as does abuse of power. And I think what's mm-hmm. really interesting in the example you're giving of, of the church's dynamics is that what you basically have, have created is, is what's called a, a self-selection problem, which is mm. people are, are volunteering to become powerful. Now, that can be a really good thing, right? Because it means that people who are drawn to service and leadership for the right reasons have fewer barriers to getting there. But it can also be a problem if you have those sort of power-hungry individuals who are conniving and manipulative who really enjoy the power for the sake of it, but pretend to want it for service or you know, community building and so on. So I think what's, what's always important, I mean, the reason I, to- I, I titled my book Corruptible is because it is certainly the case that there is a disproportionate effect in which corruptible people gravitate towards power. And that's because some types of people, you know, there's lots of psychology research about psychopathy being psychopaths and Machiavellianism and all this type of stuff. They enjoy control over other people. So you have this sort of magnet effect that draws some of the wrong kinds of people into positions of leadership. Now, that's not a static thing, right? You either can dial that tendency up or dial it down, depending on how the system and the community and the constraints around power operate. So in the best systems, in the ones in which you know the church, for example, is operating really, really well, there's a good sense of community, there's some oversight, et cetera, you can have a great system emerge from self-selection, right? In other places where you know there's a little bit less light on the leader, there's a little bit less a little bit fewer constraints, and also you just get bad luck in terms of who's in your congregation, you might have a bad apple who's quite, you know, finds it quite easy to sort of waltz into a position of power and leadership and control. And so my attitude towards this has always been that you sort of, you know, it's sort of like a trust but verify system. It's like you want to have a system that's designed to deal with if you do get unlucky and that sort of power-hungry, abusive person is the one who's seeking power in your congregation. But you also want to make power itself so attractive that people who are service oriented are drawn to it. Because, you know, I think one of the things that I worry about in modern society is that there are lots of burdens that are associated with power. And therefore, a lot of people who just want to lead for the sake of helping other people might think, "Uh, is it really worth it that I might, you know, I might get sued or I might have people 
second guessing me all the time or whatever it is, you know, on the smaller stages of power. And that to me is something where you have to sort of balance it out, right? You want to balance out the making it attractive for the sort of right kind of person to want to be there, but also have the sort of constraints and oversight to weed out those people who might not be the right person for the job. Yeah. And I think many, you know, listening would say, well, in our faith tradition, you know, there's no application process like the the hidden tyrant in the congregation, he can't force his way into these positions. They have to be, you know, we we believe in this revelatory process that some of our higher up leaders are taking this to God and praying over it and and considering names and then moving forward. And so it's interesting that that there's almost this this endowment to dynamic that's happening in our in our leadership tradition. Like this person wasn't just selected because he wanted it. He was selected because God wants him to. But nonetheless, it's hard to ignore that some of these dynamics still persist that there are individuals who, whether they believe it or not, sort of want to be on that pedestal, want to have that power and whatnot. And even if you put them on a lie detector test, they're not going to say, oh yeah, well, I secretly just you know want to be a tyrant and I want, I'm power hungry and whatnot. But you know, it's still, these dynamics still exist, even though we have this tradition of being very prayerful about the leaders we exist, because at the end of the day, there's only so many people in our geographical area that we can select from. And and so, would you say, even if people aren't aware of this power-hungry dynamic, that they still tend to get selected in some way? Yeah. So, there's a few things I'd say to that. I mean, one is that when I was researching and writing the book, I was using that phrase, power-hungry. And I, I just sort of took a step back and thought to myself, what does that actually mean? It means someone who wants power, right? Mm-hmm. So when you have a self-selection process where people volunteer to become powerful, whether it's in a church or in an election or to try to get to the top job in a business, I mean, power-hungry people are by definition disproportionately going to be those who seek power. Now, mm-hmm. we usually use that term as a negative, right? But I mean, right. it, it literally, it's defining people who seek power. So there's obviously going to be a, diff- a disproportionate effect. Now, I don't claim to be a theologian in sort of understanding how this would operate within the church, but I would say that there are problems in which people who are pretending to be driven by altruistic and proper ambitions sometimes definitely succeed at at climbing the ranks. And Mm -hmm. when you think about abuse scandals and people who have behaved badly in positions of leadership, whether it's in politics, business, sports, religion, et cetera, there's quite clear proof that, that yes, this happens. Now, what my research shows, and I think this is the sort of unfortunate truth, is that the people who are uniquely unsuited for positions of power, in other words, they'd be quite bad at wielding it, they're more prone to abuse, corruption, et cetera. The bad news is that those people are often the best at getting power because the very reasons that they're going to be so bad at it are in themselves helpful in, in ascending the ladder, which is to say they're manipulative, they're convincing, they're charming. You know, the dark triad is this term in psychology, which refers to psychopathy being a psychopath, Machiavellianism, which is this sort of ruthless ends justifies the means person, and then narcissism, which is, you know, that their ego is what matters the most. I mean, none of these traits are particularly godly uh, in their, in their uh, you know, manifestation in humans, but those people are very, very good at getting into leadership positions. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that, I mean, the, the, the two words that are most associated with psychopaths is superficial charm. It's people who are very good at making people like them during small level exposures to their personality. So they're, they're very good at faking it for sort of, you know, 30, 45 minute interactions, which, you know, at least in a business context, that's the job interview, right? Yeah. So my view on this is that what you have to do is, is 
you have to sort of assume that there's this problem that may exist and you hope that it will never manifest itself. But I think it's just sort of a better safe than sorry thing because of course, when you when you do get it wrong and someone does abuse their authority in the church, I mean, that has knock-on effects for a very large number of people. I mean, it might make the next generation of people less likely to seek leadership because they don't see themselves that way. It might make the congregation shrink because people have a, a poor experience with it. So, you know, there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of consequential outcomes that are derived from having the right person in a position of leadership. And I think to be honest, if you're the right kind of leader, you should not care about that extra level of scrutiny or oversight because you would have no worries about it, right? You'd say like, yeah, I mean, it's no problem. I, I, I'm planning to do this for service. So if you want to put in a few extra checks on me, you know, so be it. That's how I would see it anyway. But it, of course, um, as I say, I'm not a theologian who can debate the, right. the merits of whether God has selected these people or not. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we see, you know, someone who may, we may frame as a tyrant in leadership positions. They're, they're very good at getting their way as that leader. And even before they were that leader, whether it's natural skill or, or, you know, characteristic that they have that just naturally charms people into thinking, you know, there's something about this man or woman that draws me to them. And man, I should, maybe they should be more involved. Right. And, and just naturally happens. Well, a lot of, a lot of dictators got elected. So, you know, <laughs> to start and then they, and then they, you know, sort of took the constraints off them. So to my mind, it's just something that we have to acknowledge is that you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book as well is there's this study um, that just blew my mind, but it's been replicated. It's 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 very robust. It was published in one of the top scientific journals in the world, where they basically showed children these two faces, and they were told to select who to become the captain of their imaginary ship in a computer simulation. So the kids have no information other than these faces. What the kids didn't know was that the faces were one of them was the winner of a French election. And one of them was the runner-up in that same election, so the person who came in second. And uh, the kids, with no other information other than the face, overwhelmingly selected the winner to be the captain of their imaginary ship. In other words, they were just looking at the person's face and deciding on that alone. And when they did the same study in adults, they found quite similar results, right? People were making judgments about leadership qualities just based on faces. So I think one of the things that, for whatever reason, exists is that humans are not perfect evaluators of leadership ability and integrity when they're picking who to put in charge. They're just not. Yeah. And so my view on this is we can either pretend that's not the case, like, like let's, let's just imagine that we are actually 100% accurate, or we can say, okay, we're going to get a certain percentage of these are going to be wrong. So what do we do if we accept that sometimes we're going to have not the perfect leader in charge? How do we design a system that limits the damage or gets them replaced when we need to, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, I love that part in your book of, of considering just the look of, of a leader can, can bias us. And when we select leaders and it took my mind to, so our tradition of, of calling stake presidents, which is we have congregations, which are led by bishops. And then a group of those congregations are led by stake presidents. And these stake presidents usually have a term of nine years. And at the end of that nine years, we'll have a, a regional leader come to the area who really knows nothing about the area or the people there. And within 12 to 18 hours, they may interview up to 30 different people, you know, general leaders in that area, and then they have to select the next leader who will then lead for nine years. And so it's sort of an interesting microcosm of, of this process that made me think oftentimes that regional leader could be making a lot of assumptions about whether this person's a good leader just by the way he carries himself or how he looks or, you know, and we there's sort of this uh, stigma in our faith tradition that 
leaders shouldn't have beards. And so if it, though it's not written anywhere and it, there's really no policy against it, that's sort of the ongoing tradition or faith that's been that way for decades. And so even a leader coming in who maybe have a, has a goatee or a beard, I think whether that regional leader realizes it or not, they're sort of biasing them in a, in a certain way. And again, there's probably people are yelling blasphemy at their at their podcast player right now because we like we want to only frame it as no Kurt this is a spiritual revelatory process that God selects these people and I and I believe that however we at some point we have to say what biases my personal biases just how my brain works what biases are being inserted in this that are actually you know altering my my good decision making process just because the way this just because this guy is 66 and you know, carries himself like an accomplished attorney, like that may be biasing me in some way that I'm missing some core leadership attributes that I should take prayerfully to God as I continue, as I consider leader. So, I mean, looks do have a certain way and we maybe need to ask ourselves, how can I avoid the bias of just how a person looks when, when choosing a leader, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm also learning. I need to to shave if I ever go for it in the uh, in the LDS because I've <laughs> got right. a beard. But now I was going to say, I mean, the, the the thing I'd say to that is when you think about how these things operate in the real world, I mean, there's a an aspect to leadership selection that's much more simple than appearance, which is just are you a good talker who's an extrovert, for example? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of people who can be good leaders, but are maybe quieter leaders. They're not the people who are always giving stump speeches and are, are amazing orators and so on. And yet they, they have a good track record of integrity. They care, they're motivated by service, and they can really help people. And you think about, you know, how do we design systems to evaluate leaders in, in modern society? I mean, in elections, it's people give speeches. In job interviews, you've got to sort of charm people in this short period. And so my view on this is not that there's, you know, it's not, it's not to challenge the, the, the faith of people who view this as a revelatory process. It's to say, you know, how do you reveal it? Do you reveal it by, by setting up systems where you test people in, in a way where it's about how they carry themselves, how they speak? Or do you reveal it in a way that might be able to give people who don't look like a leader or don't have the immediate charisma of someone who you know, might not be in it for the right reasons, how do you give them, them a chance to reveal their leadership potential? So, so to me, it's not about challenging the idea that you know, th- this concept is wrong. It's more about saying there's multiple ways to reveal leadership in people. And it, it's worth thinking carefully about whether the human decisions in involved in that are the ones that are going to produce the optimal outcomes or not. Nice. So if if you were to give a crash course to someone saying, oh, all right, Brent, I've got to go to this area and in, in 12 to 18 hours, I've got to pick the leader that's going to lead this area for a decade. Like, Are there any hard and fast rules I can consider in order to make sure my bias, uh, my natural human bias doesn't alter that process and I, and I come out with the best leader possible? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's a few things. I think one of them is asking people how they would ensure that they're exposed to disagreement in their decision making. That's something that really I think is a is a very revealing question to ask people. So, you know, you have this sort of question about how did people do this in the past where, you know, they, the, the example that's often put up in leadership studies is Abraham Lincoln with the team of rivals where he had yeah. he basically took his enemies and put them in the cabinet and they argued with him about stuff. And you have other people who I've, you know, I've interviewed former authoritarian leaders, former dictators, who just, you know, they basically purged people when they disagreed. And so I think it's quite a revealing answer of, of how do you, how would you think about being challenged in terms of your decision making? If they have a plan for it, and they want to be 
you know, thoughtfully challenged, I think that's a very good sign. I think another thing to ask people is, would it matter to you if you were doing this job anonymously? That's another thing that I think is interesting because a lot of people are drawn to leadership for the vanity of it. You know, they, they, they like the idea of power. They like the idea of social prestige. The right leaders don't care about that. They, they care about actually producing better outcomes for people, actually helping people. So, you know, those kinds of questions are sort of off the wall questions. But if somebody freezes with them and, and has you know, a really hard gra- time grappling with that, those sort of ideas, I think that's a, a, a bad sign, basically. And I think, I think it's also just something where you want to make sure that you're not just asking somebody to give their polished elevator pitch to you. When you ask people to sort of sell themselves to you as a leader, the people who are very good at tricking people or masquerading uh, as something they're not, that is the dream pitch, right? It's to say, please convince me in the short time period in which you control all of the discussion that I'm the right person for the job. I mean, asking questions about the sort of motivation that if you were making it up, would be harder. And, you know, I think this fits, frankly, theologically with this idea of revelatory leadership, because if you ask the right questions, you're hopefully revealing the people who shouldn't be in leadership to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And and it's interesting, you know, with this dynamic, because there is this stigma in our in our faith tradition. And I think there's it's found in others is that nobody should desire these roles. Like if somebody is being interviewed for that regional leadership position, like you shouldn't want it. And so in these in these quick interviews, and many of them last just five minutes, you know, trying to select a leader for nine years, there's sort of this downplay of like, oh gee, you know, not me. I'm just, I'm just too humble for this. And 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 you know, some are sincere in that, but I can see those that actually do want that position, do want that power for a decade long in their area, they can really downplay it of just saying, like, ah, oh, no, not me. Like, yeah, I I would I would prefer if this be handled anonymously, like nobody knew I was the leader or whatnot. And so it's sometimes hard to really understand, you know, what type of leader you have because of these these natural stigmas around in our in our culture, right? But. Well, I think you know, I mean, first off, that's an interesting dynamic because there's very few organizations in which people are trying to downplay right. uh, their power seeking. So yeah. that, and that's actually quite a healthy thing, I think. Oh, good. Because in most places, people, you know, it, which politician says, "I don't really want this job." I mean, they all right. Do, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's their job um, is to convince us why why we should pick yeah, them, right? Exactly. So, uh, so, so that's you know, that's quite a healthy culture in a way. But but I would say that also, when you're thinking about this, I don't know how this fits in with the way that this actually operates, you know, within your congregation, for example. But I've often thought that self selection, you know, can work in some contexts where people say I'm the right person for the job. But I also think there's there's a there should be a bigger role in people identifying those within the community who they think would be excellent at a leadership position and basically convincing them. And I'm sure this happens informally in some contexts and, and doesn't happen in other contexts within the LDS church. But mm-hmm. that's it's a really powerful way of counteracting this problem because, you know, I I know I'm using the analogy of politics here again, but political parties don't usually spend a lot of money or time actively recruiting people with a track record of integrity in the community and saying, please run for office. We, we, we want you to be our candidate. Instead, they sort of wait for people to say, I would like to be the candidate. And I think that there's something powerful about trying to find people who have shown in other contexts, perhaps maybe the non-religious context of their life, that they have behaved in a leadership position with integrity and dedication and so on, that those people might get a little nudge. You know, and and you know, mm-hmm. I don't know whether people would interpret that as 
this is another way of sort of the revelatory process happening where someone's recognizing hidden leadership potential in someone. But I do think that my research shows quite clearly that, that those people who are asked to lead by others are very often less prone to some of the dynamics of power corrupting people, power changing their psychology, et cetera, because they don't see them as someone who is getting the payoff of power. They see someone who's basically accepting the burden of leadership. And that mentality difference, I think, is quite important because the idea of power as a payoff primes you for all sorts of different kinds of mentalities than if you sort of think like, all right, I'll do my time because somebody needs to do this job and people think I would I would behave with integrity. And the responsibility that comes with that because other people have said, we're counting on you, we think you'd be great at this, et cetera. It's a small tweak, but there's a lot of evidence, I think, to suggest that that's actually a, a very healthy way of recruiting mm. leaders. Yeah. So like one part of this process of picking the stake president leader to lead for a decade is of these 30 or so people that are interviewed, that regional leader asked them all to bring three names of individuals who they think would be you know, prime candidates to be considered. And not that majority rules or they just count out the votes and pick that guy, but I think it does help that regional leader who knows nothing about these people uh, you know, in the long term to get a sense of what do these local leaders think would make a good, good one. And I think from what you're saying in reading your book, that's probably a, a beneficial practice to continue. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, one of the things that's the broad image, broad message that I've tried to convey with the book is that there are better and worse ways to select leaders. And the people who get this right are the people who are really self-reflective about the process. And it sounds like this is something that actually is discussed, right? I would say that, you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the leadership selection uh, process, but the fact that there are discussions like this is a positive mm-hmm. thing. What I would say over the long run is that organizations that end up on what I call autopilot with leadership selection are the ones where problems start to develop. So in other Mm -hmm. words, where a problem has arisen, somebody has behaved badly in a leadership position, for example, and you just don't change anything. You chalk it up to them being a bad apple and so on. One of the things that I view, I believe very, very strongly from doing research all around the world and, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and Southeast Asia and so on, is I think human behavior is very context dependent. I think that systems matter a lot for how humans behave. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you were thrust into a totally different culture and a totally different system, you might behave differently than if you, you know, exist in your current life as you are. And why that matters is because if something is going wrong with leaders, the easiest and probably laziest thing to do is to just say that was a bad person. I think the harder thing to do, but the one that's going to pay the most dividends for an organization over the long run is to think, was there anything in our system that could have counteracted this earlier on? Was there a way in which we could have avoided selecting this person as a leader? Was there a way we could have caught that they were abusing their position a bit earlier? And that sort of introspection for organizations makes a huge difference because it means you learn from mistakes, which, you know, ultimately is the way to prevent repetition. I lament that what often happens, you know, when I talk to people about my research around leaders, I find very few people who think that in general in society, and I'm not talking in, you know, in a specific religious organization, I'm just saying in general, Mm -hmm. if I ask the question, do you generally think we get the best leaders who reflect the best of our society? Almost nobody says yes. Mm. And it's just on repeat. It's like, Okay. And then another scandal happens. And then people say, oh, well, they were a bad one too. And then another scandal happens. And again, the blame is laid always at the individual. And there's never sort of this question about, 
could we have done something differently so that they didn't end up as powerful in the first place or that they were basically taken out of the system once they started behaving badly a bit earlier? And that's that's the kind of discussion that I think is quite healthy, whether you're a religious organization, a business or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And there's even a heavier dynamic in our religious tradition, I, at least I'm assuming that because we don't want to challenge the system because we frame the system as revealed by God and a long tradition of from our authorities and whatnot. But in reality, there are these little nuances that we do that in our system that happen every time that we can maybe step back and say, why do we do that? Is there a better way to go about it to keep our biases out of it or pick the the leader that sort of fits the mold? And so to just maybe step back and again, you know, challenging the system doesn't mean we we are challenging God. But we're, you know, a lot of these systems are built just from years of tradition, right? Like of just doing it the same way, like because, well, I don't know how to do it different. So how did the last guy do it? And I think if we look at just these systems of even the smaller, you know, leadership roles of picking an elder scorn president, relief study president, saying, how do we typically go about this and how can we get a better leader, someone more prepared, more willing to lead by just looking at the system, right? Rather than, well, that person just isn't a good leader. So let's try someone else. Well, let, let me use an example here because I think, you know, I, I take your point that some of these systems are obviously ingrained with religious belief, mm-hmm. but it's not that you have to destroy the system. It's that you might add a small tweak to it that can mm-hmm. produce a massively different outcome. So now forgive the analogy here because I'm not comparing your church to <laughs> the IRS, but okay. the IRS <laughs> has this great lesson, I think, for all of us of how you can keep the system, but just do this little tiny thing with a big consequence. So in the 1980s, there was a guy working at the IRS who noticed that a lot of Americans seemed to have children who were named Fido as their dependents, and they were getting a tax break for Fido the dependent. <laughs> okay. Now, he suspected that maybe these were not children, that these were dogs, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he went to his bosses and he said, look, why don't we put on the tax form a line next to the dependent name that asks for their social security number? Right, which Fido the dog definitively does not have. But if you happen to have a child named Fido for real, you have no problem producing the social security number. And what's amazing is they did this and 7 million children disappeared (laughs) from the tax rolls from one year to the next because 7 million people were lying on their tax returns about the number of dependents they had. And so what that lesson to me says is, okay, you've got a system in which you choose who's going to be a faith leader in your congregation. Fine. Are there little around the edges tweaks that might make a slight difference in who applies for that job with a little bit of informal encouragement? Are there little things that you can slightly change that would make this a bit more effective? That's the kind of thing where when you go across these elements of of leadership selection, you don't have to throw the entire system out. It's not like I'm saying, let's get rid of elections, right? It's that I'm saying, we have to think carefully about who ends up as a candidate. We have to think carefully about how people are vetted. And so I think within any organization, you sort of have the parameters of the way you want to select leaders. And then after that, you think carefully about, okay, last time it went a bit wrong. What could we have learned from that situation? And I would humbly suggest as a non-theologically minded person who's not, not, not an expert, that perhaps this would be one way, at least of thinking about it, is that if the revelation of the leader turned out to be someone who behaved quite badly, then maybe that is a signal or a message that something slightly should change as well. So that would be my humble suggestion on that front. Yeah, I love that. And again, you know, it's, we can't just default to blaming the person. Oh, we just got a bad apple. Maybe it's the system. And to sort of 
reflect what you said around politics. You're not saying we get rid of elections, nor am I saying we get rid of this process of being prayerful and asking God to confirm our decisions about leadership. But maybe we look back at how do we even come up with this list of potential candidates for these leadership roles? And is there something we could do to even just tweak it a little bit to make sure that we get a higher level or more prepared list of of leaders or people who maybe aren't prepared, but just naturally would have the characteristics to to thrive in that role as a leader. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think cool. it's just, as I said, my, my big message from the book is it's a series of pieces of evidence that I think add up to a bigger point, which is if you think carefully about this, you can get better outcomes. There are better and worse ways of doing this and better and worse ways of identifying people to be leaders. And you know, you can learn from past mistakes quite effectively and then avoid future mistakes just as effectively. Yeah. Love that. So helpful. So I want to go back to this idea of, you know, this term of power hungry and desiring power because, you know, I had the opportunity at younger than average age to become a bishop or a local pastor of, of my ward and served there for five years. And then I was given the opportunity to serve in a, a stake presidency, which is, you know, over a, a group of, of wards. And again, at no point did I apply for these or think someday I'm, I'd like to become a bishop. So I'm going to do these things to get there. But being there and having that experience, you know, I was involved. I had influence on big decisions in my area. Like I enjoyed that process there, but now I'm out of it. And there's sort of this stigma of like, oh, remember, you're not supposed to want leadership callings. But then I think, well, but I really enjoyed that. And so if that opportunity came again, I sure hope maybe I get that opportunity again. So my main question is just like, as far as power hungry, like, is there a problem with desiring, desiring power or do I have some hidden psychopath that deep <laughs> in my soul? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. I mean, I think the way that I would put this is that there's everybody who wants power is in some sense power hungry. But in modern parlance, we've used that term to be negative, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the more accurate way of thinking about it is that there are two types of power hungry people. There are people who are hungry to serve and there are people who are hungry to abuse. And the important thing is, are the people who are hungry to serve being identified correctly and the people who are hungry to abuse being identified correctly? Yeah. They both want power. So the question is, why do you want power? And you know, to my mind, I think when I think about my own sort of, I, you know, I, I'm a political scientist by training, but I got interested in politics when, when my mom was running for school board when I was eight years old. And, you know, okay. In a technical term, she was power hungry because she wanted power in the local school board, but she was drawn to help the school board and the school district just operate a bit better because she wanted her kids to have the best education and other kids to have great opportunities. I think the question is, you know, if you create a world in which it's, you know, there's a lot of polarization in the United States right now, for example, and some of these local jobs are becoming quite toxic for people to to sort of end up in where they you know they face harassment or abuse or um, you know occasionally threats and what's important to think about and this is something I've thought about a lot with my own you know past is would my mom run for a position of power in you know US politics now because of the polarization and the sort of yeah. vitriol and so on I don't think I don't think she would have mm. and so you know that's not because she's different it's because the level of attraction for a, a system of power has changed. Now, the reason that matters is because if power itself becomes unattractive, except for the fact that you can control others, in other words, if you're, if you're unable to actually make a difference in other people's lives, if you don't feel like you've been delegated to so you actually can change things, 
then who's going to gravitate towards power? Well, it's the people who are hungry to abuse because the power is always there. You see what I mean? In other words, if you have a system in which public service and community is rewarded, then the power hungry will be the right kind of hungry. If you have a position where all you really get is prestige, but you don't actually do service, you don't actually help people, et cetera, the people who are in it for the abuse are going to go straight for the top. So it's this interaction between, I think, identification of what people's motives are and also how the system can attract the right kind of people mm. to ensure that their efforts are going to be rewarded in the way that they envision. I mean, if you try, like when I talked about the homeowners associations in the book, I mean, one of the problems with homeowners associations that are designed poorly is that the only thing you get out of them in the worst ones is that your neighbors hate you because you enforce <laughs> trash can collection. I yeah. mean, if that's the only thing you get out of power, who's going to go for that job? The person who gets off on the power, right? Because yeah. they yeah. don't want it for any other reason. Whereas if the homeowners association is a role in which you build community and help people solve problems, public service oriented people will try to run for that position. So you can see how it's a sort of chicken or egg. I mean, there are people who are more or less power hungry, but there's also, you know, there's an attraction level to power that draws in the right or wrong people, depending on how the system operates. Yeah. And again, it goes back to the system rather than the people per se. And, and, when, and what I learned mainly from that is we need to realize that the tyrants with the, who just want the power to abuse, they're already gunning for these leadership roles, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but they're already gunning for it. So we might as well remove the stigma of desiring these for the good people to say, you know what, if we need more good people in these roles and not, you know, deflecting them or saying, oh, I don't want to serve. I'm just humble me. I couldn't do that. Say, you know, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to shift in, in my, either my local culture or around the church through this podcast is when somebody says, man, you would be a great bishop. I hope you're the next bishop. You don't say, oh, no, that's ridiculous. That's baloney. You say, you know what? I hope I get a chance. I, I'd be interested to see how I do in that role, or I would love to serve on that level for a time to see how I can benefit the lives of individuals rather than the stigma of like, oh, nobody wants it and you shouldn't want it. But the tyrant is already gunning for that position. So we might as well counteract that. Yeah. So that's the right way to look about look at it, I think. So I gave a talk in England about a, a week and a half ago. And I asked the audience, I said, we have a parliament over here as opposed to Congress. But I said to them, right. raise your hand. If I could just flip a switch and you would switch places with a member of parliament, you'd, you'd instantly become a congressman, let's imagine. Yeah. Would you take that trade? Right? Would you, would you do it? And basically <laughs> one person raised their hand. And I said, okay, this is the problem, right? Because like we've got a group of normal, decent people who are just coming to hear a, an author talk about their book mm. and none of them want that position of power. Now, what that means is that the power-hungry, abusive, narcissistic psychopath will always throw their hat in the ring. They're always going to be gunning for power. So what you really want to do is you want to broaden the base of people who seek power because the broader that base is, the more likelihood that you've just got a normal, decent person who cares about other people. I mean, you know, we haven't talked about this a lot in, the, in this interview, but like a lot of my work has been interviewing some of the worst people in the world, right? I mean, I, I've interviewed people who have been involved in torturing people, who have committed mass atrocities, former authoritarian leaders. And despite that, I think they are major outliers. I have all this experience, you know, meeting some really, really bad people. I think most people are really decent and good. And so the question is, if we have this small segment of people who are motivated by all the wrong things, who are natural abusers, who are, you know, the people you really want to keep away from power. 
let's imagine that there's like 100% certainty that they're going to apply for these jobs or try to get into a position to control other people. What you need to do is dilute the pool with lots of good, decent, nice people who would be drawn to service. And then the chances that you end up with one of these monsters in power is very low. Yeah. So, you know, my attitude is always to encourage, encourage, encourage all of the sort of people who would basically think of power as a burden, but would wield it really justly. Mm-hmm. There's a great quote, one of my fingers, favorite um, English novelists, this guy, Douglas Adams, and he, he has this, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he says something to the effect of anybody who can get themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. Uh, he's talking about uh, the president of the universe. It's a sci-fi uh, book. But the point is that he's what he's basically saying is that, you know, we've sort of engineered a world in which being a little bit manipulative, being a little bit narcissistic might be the ticket in, in mm. climbing the hierarchy. So what do you do? Well, you make it so that a lot more people who are just normal, decent people are in competition and, you know, they'll end up in leadership positions more. So I would encourage people who are actually drawn to service and think they could make a difference don't think about the stigma of being power hungry. Think about it being hungry to serve. Yeah. And so I can't tell you how applicable that is for our, our faith community to hear. And man, so good. So what about, let's say we dial in the system. It's great. We're, we, we pick this, this pure vessel, you know, to, to step forward and lead our, our congregations. And they're just, I mean, they mark all the boxes and they're humble and they're great. Does just this the title of leadership or these roles of leadership, does it have a naturally corrupting nature to it? Yeah. So this is one of the things that there's a lot of psychology and neuroscience research on this front. And the thing that I was quite astonished to read about was that there are both psychological and neuroscience changes to people's brains when they inhabit positions of power. And if you're on a small stage of power, you know, in a local community, I mean, it's going to be a small effect. If yeah. you're a dictator, it's going to be quite a big effect. Yeah, yeah. So, but what I would say is that the reason this is important to keep in mind is because what I often say, I, you know, I sometimes speak to businesses, for example, and I'm talking to C, like, if I'm talking to a CEO, I sort of, I'm a little bit hesitant to say like, your brain has been warped by power. And, you know, but, <laughs> but what I do say to them is I say, look, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that power can go to your head. It can go in a sort of metaphorical sense in your thought process but it can also go in a chemical way. I mean, there's studies that show dopamine receptors in the brain change, et cetera. And therefore, all I would say is, again, you can pretend that doesn't exist, or you can just think a little bit more carefully about how to ensure that that doesn't happen to you. Mm-hmm. So this is where what I was talking about before with like getting people who disagree with you. That's important. Another aspect is that power sometimes, and this is less likely to happen if you're in a local congregation where you know everyone, but if you're a significant leader in a church, for example, then this effect can happen, which is the idea of people below you becoming abstractions. So mm-hmm. if you're a CEO or you're a leader of a congregation of 10,000 people or you know millions of people, what you can end up having happen to you is that everybody who used to be an individual when you were part of a small congregation has now become just an abstraction because there's just so many people and they're interchangeable in a way because you can't possibly know them all as individuals. What's problematic about that is that when you start to see people below you in hierarchy as abstractions, that's when people cut corners, are more prone to abuse, where they just don't see people as intrinsically valuable as they might have when they were an individual who they knew really well, as opposed to a statistic. And so one of the things that I suggest is, you know, if you're the CEO of a company, we've basically engineered a society in which 
you never have to fire anyone. You you send the downsizing consultant to go do the dirty mm-hmm, work. Mm-hmm. You don't usually go to the sort of meet the employees. You just sort of exist in this corner office detached from everybody who's affected by your decisions. That's quite psychologically unhealthy for people in power because it creates this proneness to abuse. So what do you do? Well, you try to make specific policies within your you know weekly schedule in which you make sure that you're reminded that your decisions are affecting real people, that they're actually going to have consequences. You ask for people to give you feedback. When you do something that's unpopular, you get to understand what is causing the you know sort of discontent among the people who oppose your idea. That type of stuff, I think, is what makes leaders really, really effective because it's not that they're immune in some way to the corrosive effects of power. It's that they have designed ways to counteract them proactively mm-hmm. because they understand that they are likely to face some of these changes in a way that we have documented, I think, quite convincingly in scientific, psychological, neuroscientific literature. Yeah, that's, that's so helpful because, again, we can walk into these roles of saying, you know, Brian, not me, like I'll make sure the corruption or, you know, the intrigue and pride of these callings does not impact my heart. But that's, again, it's not, that's looking at the individual and not the system. But what systems could you be, could you put in place to make sure that doesn't happen? Like selecting people that you often disagree with to be on your ward council. I'm I'm thinking of, and you talk about this in the book, you know, they did a a movie about it called uh, Worth about the attorney who had to determine how much to pay out to 9-11 families, you know, the families of the victims of 9-11. And I mean, how do you put a dollar amount on a life? And and the process of him going through that is interesting because at first he tried to be really separate from the emotion of it and just look at it as a, this is a spreadsheet problem. But he found he had a need to, he needed to step closer to the the real lives, the emotion of it in order to make a, a better decision. And I felt this to some, a much smaller dynamic as a bishop in an inner city area. I had individuals coming to me all the time with, you know, Bishop, I need you to help me pay my mortgage or my family doesn't have food or, you know, I know you've never met me, but, you know, I need all this this money to make sure I can continue living. And I noticed if I got too close to those situations, if it was just a mother or a father over and over crying in my office, I just couldn't say no to giving them the money, but I also needed to be prudent with the money. And so I developed a system that helped me sort of separate me enough from the emotion, but not too much. And that's maybe where the leader makes the mistake of, no, this is just a paperwork problem we need to solve, but when in reality, this is real lives. And so just in these systems of bringing the right people in the room, or if I remember in in one leadership calling I had, there's this, this one guy who like, every time he spoke, it just irritated me. I'm like, I almost wish this guy wasn't here, you know, but to say, actually, this guy is blessing me as a leader because he's keeping me honest. He's pushing me on my ideas and that's going to make for a better leader and avoid corruption in areas that, that he can help me avoid it. Right. So yeah, I think you know, so what you're describing is what we, we social scientists call a Goldilocks solution, which is just the right amount of sort of emotional <laughs> distance, right? Yeah. So the thing that was interesting with, I mean, Ken Feinberg, you know, he he told me, I, I spoke to him on the phone in the early stages of the pandemic. And he he told me that, he said, if at any point I did not feel horrible after I was trying to put a dollar amount on the, the life of somebody who died in 9-11 and decide how much their life was worth in sort of dollars and cents, if that didn't make me feel horrible, I needed to, to quit that day because mm. it meant that I just didn't care anymore. Right. And this was a responsibility that I took really seriously. So he sat down with people to make himself feel awful because he knew it would be upsetting and therefore he would be even more careful to get the right amount. 
And, you know, I've had this conversation with my brother as well, where he, he's a doctor and, you know, he, he has to tell families that he's a, he's a stroke medicine doctor. And he has to tell sometimes families that, you know, your, your grandpa, your dad, you know, your son is not coming back or that this is never going to get better. And yes, he's more practiced at it. Right? He has he has the ability to sort of know what the right thing and the wrong thing to say is in that situation because he's done it a lot. But he said, the second that I don't feel upset at that situation, I should not be a doctor anymore because I have to understand that this conversation is one of the worst conversations this person's ever going to go through. And you know, for you, when someone's coming to you and asking for money, it might be the most shameful conversation they felt where they have to you know have to ask for somebody for help. That might be something that they feel shame or a stigma around. And, you know, you're right. Like it's something where you want to have the right balance because you, you can't give everybody, you can't just give bags of gold out, you know, to everybody, but you want to be in a situation where you're able to, to sort of empathize with people. And I think leaders who lose that ability are in very dangerous waters quite quickly. Yeah. So going back to the framing of the Goldilocks solution, is that sort of a desired thing we should reach for? Or is that a false premise altogether? No, no, no. It's a desire. I think it's a desired thing. I mean, okay. I think it's, I think that, so when it comes to positions of leadership, what you're describing with people coming to you and asking for money is basically the the, the sort of empathy versus pragmatism divide, which mm-hmm. is that you know you want to care about people, you want to help people, but you also have to be realistic about what's possible. And so, what do you do? Well, some people who I think are quite bad leaders go full pragmatism. In other words, they just simply shut off the emotional side of themselves. They shut off the empathy. And they just make a spreadsheet or they, you know, everything becomes a rigorous algorithmic style decision, right? Like I'm going to make it as objective as possible and so on. And, you know, sometimes leaders have to behave that way, but at least have the empathy come into the calculation, even if it's just for you personally, even if you're ultimately going to make the same decision. I think at the point where leaders don't care about the people that they're making decisions against or about is a point where the risk for me, I would say that's a leader who's at real risk of behaving quite badly in this situation because they've stopped thinking about the human dimension. And that is a very dangerous place for someone to be in because once you stop thinking about that, humans become disposable. The sort of moral justifications you can give yourself for cutting corners because you think, eh, well, you know, whatever, these people don't matter. It becomes a slippery slope quite quickly. So the Goldilocks solution, I think, is the right one. It's the, it's the idea that you balance these things and make sure that you have, you know, your heart and your head duking it out every time. And even if you end up going with your head much of the time, you're at least being swayed by that yeah. sort of voice inside you that says, I should really care about these people. What else could I do for them? If I have to say no, can I help them in some other way? That's a very useful thing as opposed to just saying no. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people who are in leadership positions that start to view people as abstractions, disposable, etc., they end up most prone to abuse and neglect and corruption. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I can see a leader in whatever meeting they're in or decision they're making, just sort of defaulting this position of like, how can I understand how this is impacting the the actual human beings I'm leading, right? Because sometimes these decisions seem so administrative and like, does it really matter if, you know, we have this activity on that day or if we run the, the church service this way? But to go back to how is this impacting the humans that I'm actually leading, right? Exactly, exactly. Well said. So I'm just thinking of those individuals who are listening to this thinking, oh man, Brian needs to do a full case study on my leader because boy, is he a tyrant. And 
yep, yep. I, I'm just checking the boxes as I go down here. He's he's that uh, tyrant there, you know, that just he's corrupted and he desires power. Like, how do we as maybe just people in the flock, how do we deal with a leader who is a tyrant? Like, especially in a dynamic, I mean, we don't have a voting period that comes around. You know, we just have to wait five or so years till that guy is released and a new person is put in. But any advice you give to the person who's dealing with a corrupted leader? Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, there's some people who behave badly in leadership positions that may not be aware of the effects that their behavior is having on other people. For So mm-hmm. so in some ways, I mean, talking is obviously the, the lowest barrier to entry, explaining the problem, not staying silent about it because there might be lots of other people who feel the same way as you. Mm, yeah. The second thing is trying to think about how when decisions are made, you can be more involved in it. So maybe you're stuck with someone who isn't the most uh, community-minded leader. Can you try to sway them in a way? Can you get a working group within your congregation to sort of present an idea that you think might have an impact? And then, you know, of course, there's also this question of how do you deal with oversight? I mean, if somebody is truly being a horrible person in leadership, sometimes they're actually abusing their position in ways that are more consequential (laughs) than -hmm. just being a nuisance. Are there any sort of checks or oversight to make sure that's that's not the case? Is it possible to have any? You know, my attitude towards this is in general that you want to design systems that provide either constraints or replacement for people. Now, if you can't replace them based on the rules of leadership selection, how do you put constraints on them? How do you make them see the error of their ways? And some people will be swayed. Some people will not, right? I mean, if you have a person who's a Machiavellian narcissistic psychopath in a leadership position, <laughs> talking to them is not going to help. I mean, I, you know, I don't want yeah, to sugarcoat right. this. There are some people who are just not going to be reached in that way. So then it's about trying to minimize the damage, constrain them, you know, find a way to work around them, et cetera. But yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because speaking to you is slightly different because in businesses, you can just sort of change the rules. You can get rid of people. I mean, I understand that this aspect of, of the sort of divine providence around it makes it a little bit more, more difficult yeah. to sort of just say, <laughs> oh, we made a mistake. So it, it puts you in a little bit less of a wiggle room. But I think creative thinking about it is always the right way to deal with it. There yeah. are ways to minimize the damage that leaders cause when they're bad leaders. And getting together with other people to, to strategize and think about that is the first step with your, your own local group. And I think that's that's what I would say. If they're truly horrific, I mean, then I think going one level up the ladder is mm-hmm. probably the right thing to do to talk to somebody higher up the hierarchy and say, look, this is just like really not on what's happening yeah. and discussing it that way. Yeah. Especially, you know, in literal abuse is happening or whatnot. Uh, you got to speak up. I mean, you really have a obligation to. And uh, but yeah, no no formal impeachment process in our, in our family. <laughs> it's something we can look at, but uh, hopefully it doesn't happen, you know, the, happen too often to that, that extent. But Brian, this has been awesome. Again, I really enjoyed just uh, going through your book and, and learning from it. I highly recommend people check it out. I mean, this would be great for a bishopric, a, a ward council to just maybe review and, and sit with, you know, have your little book club there and, and sit with these concepts. Because I think it's important for us to take initiative to make sure that we do all possible to make sure we don't have uh, tyrants or corruptible leaders or, uh, you know, that I think that'll lead us to a, a higher level of community and, and whatnot. So anything you'd add as far as getting the book or where people should check it out? Obviously, Amazon's the, the go-to everywhere, but anything else yeah, you'd I, say as far as getting it? Anywhere books are sold, it's called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is this is why I wrote the book, right? I mean, uh, I didn't envision that I would be speaking to, you know, your specific podcast, for example. <laughs> but I did think... I hope that people just think a little bit more carefully about these topics. People who read the book won't agree with everything I say. 
right? I mean, there's, I, I'm talking about leadership selection. It won't fit 100% for your dynamics. But I love the idea of the book club because it's the kind of thing where what I hoped to spark is yeah. conversations about, could we do this a little bit better? Could we do it a little bit differently? And, you know, I would be delighted if you hate every idea I have, but you end up having some discussions about this, I'd be absolutely delighted by it. It's not my idea here was not to tell people do this, do that. It's to sort of start the conversation of here's what the evidence seems to suggest works and what we should be thinking about carefully in these systems and with leadership and so on. And I hope that it sparks a debate and a conversation uh, within your own local group. Yeah. Awesome. Well, last question I have for you, Brian, and, and this is maybe one as an academic, you don't get a lot. It's much more of an emotion question than an intellectual question. But going through this project, this research and studying, how has it changed you personally in whatever maybe the power you yield or just the person you are? Yeah. You know, I, I think, to be honest, I've almost become more optimistic, which is odd. Because <laughs> if, if people read the book, I, I've I've met and written about some really, really t- disturbing individuals, uh, you know, mass murderers and so on. Yeah. And yet the reason I'm optimistic is because the response to the book has been that I've been really encouraged by is there's a lot of people out there who just want to get this a little bit more right. And they just sort of think, you know, we've got, I think things are working 80% well, maybe we could get up to 85%. And that's the audience I was trying to reach, right? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm hoping that I'll get a call from you know, like a rural police department and saying, oh, we didn't think about, because I talk about policing in the book, for example. Oh, we didn't think about this aspect. Maybe we can make it 5% better. For me, what I was really amazed by in doing the research is how there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. None of the stuff I talked about with you is rocket science, right? This isn't like some super, imp- like, it's not like some incomprehensible formula that you have to apply. It's that you just have to be systematically strategic about how you figure out who gets powerful, and also to ensure that the people who become leaders wield it justly. So, you know, as I say, I hope that people just think carefully about it, make a 5% improvement. It'll pay a lot of dividends for a lot of people. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, to get on the email newsletter list, simply go to leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.